to Leonard Lopate at large. I'm Leonard Lopate. In her new book called Culture Warlords, My Journey into the Dark Web of White Supremacy, Talia Lavin describes the year she spent going online and infiltrating the digital places where white supremacists, white nationalists, national socialists, proud boys, Christian extremists, and incels are proliferating to learn the intricacies of white extremism today. She did it by assuming numerous identities and the results were startling. It's published by Hachette Books and brings Talia Lavin to our show now. Welcome. Hello. Good to have you. But before we begin, a lot of four letter words are used in this environment. The FCC will punish the station if we use them on the air, so so let's not, okay? Absolutely. I will tone my rhetoric down. <laughs> what got you started on this project? Was it something personal or events like Charlottesville where the marchers chanted, Jews will not replace us? Uh, it was a combination of both, Leonard. Um, so I think the, the, the more direct... Um, you know, impulse for writing culture warlords was that um, after the Unite the Right rally at Charlottesville, I started writing about the far right um, and the far right noticed, um, you know, they noticed that I was a Jewish woman who had become an outspoken critic of um, the far right and neo-Nazis. And they really came after me hard. And my impulse was sort of rather than shrinking away, I wanted to find out who are these people? Where are they coming from and how have they become so radicalized? So finding the abyss, looking at me, I decided to peer deeper and, and pull whatever I could out into the light. Now, hadn't you already been a target of extremist trolls, including some of the folks at Fox News? And, and thanks to the neo-Nazi website, the, the Daily Stormer, Weren't you the top Google search result for, quote, greasy fat kike? Yes, I was. And so living that way, um, you know, for years prior to starting to write Culture Warlords, I was pretty familiar with the far right, with the way it works, the way it targets people. And um, I felt that it was time to write not even an expose, but kind of a cri de corps, uh, mm-hmm. supplemented by research, um, quite immersive research on this movement and its metastasis. Now, they really were me. I mean, they really went after you. Didn't a group called Patriot Front send your parents a postcard with the Nazi era slogan, Blood and Soil? And, and weren't your home address and the names of your relatives published on a white supremacist friendly social media? site that was it's called gab uh yeah they were and um, so were, were you bombarded with with uh nasty stuff oh yeah i mean <laughs> and again it's part of the price of being a, a jewish woman who's outspoken against the far right it sort of comes with the territory um and i decided i'm, I'm quite a stubborn person a part of a stiff neck people, as the Bible describes Jews, and um, I decided that, you know, no matter how nasty they were going to be, even when I was just writing articles, um, they weren't going to be able to take away my right to speak and to investigate and dig into them as deeply as I could. You begin your book by citing a classic New Yorker cartoon from 
the early days of the internet, 1993, in which a dog sitting in an office chair at a computer says to another dog, on the internet, nobody knows you're a dog. Yeah. So they didn't know, on the internet, nobody knew who you were. So how did you begin this project? You, uh, did you have to learn the coded language that they use to describe the all out race war that they're planning for? Like Minecraft, All Saints Day, Day of the Rope, the Collapse, the Hootenanny? Uh, yeah, definitely. I mean, you know, uh, a lot of what I did for the book, um, you know, some some of the things I did uh, in Culture Warlords involved sort of creating identities and interacting. Um, Which we will get to. But uh, a lot of what I did was sort of sit quietly and listen. Um, and, you know, I think this was a way of penetrating the rank and file of the white power movement, listening to what they were talking about and how they spoke. Um, you know, and so I was able to do that by creating like a little innocuous sock puppet and, um, and sitting and listening. And so, you know, you do learn to, you learn the codes, um, you learn the, the little numbers and the symbols that they use to identify one another. Um, and they use to express their intentions. And it's an unfortunate vocabulary steeped in genocide and violence. Um, and one that's, lodged into my brain with the uh, immersive fluency of any other language you spend a lot of time hanging around in. Well, isn't that called accelerationism, uh, the far-right goal to facilitate civilizational collapse in the United States in order to replace it with an ethnically cleansed white ethnostate? And uh, doesn't it include suggestions for how to assassinate government officials, which are I would have thought would be illegal. Yeah, well, um, so accelerationism is definitely one tendency uh, in the white power movement, which is capacious and has a lot of different um, iterations, a number of which I sort of go into detail about in culture warlords. Um, so accelerationism, yeah, it's just, as you describe, it's this idea that, um, you know, the faster the collapse and, you know, the, the more you can usher in collapse, chaos, distrust, um, the quicker you'll be to achieve your goals, which in the case of the white power movement is, is this white ethno state where once, uh, once the United States of America stood. And, and that's a tendency that's gained significant power over the last few years. And, and this sort of general state of violence-tinged nihilism is a huge element of uh, white supremacist rhetoric and ideology. Um, and it's, you know, essentially a form of terror. It's, it's, uh, it's encouraging adherence to the movement to engage in violence, uh, to engage in, in, in terrorizing uh, people and, uh, and sort of inculcating collapse uh, in order to achieve this this purified goal of a nation free of Jews and minorities. And yes, it's horrifying to witness. Yes, it's illegal. Um, and we've seen the rise of that tendency with things like the, the, the plot to kidnap uh, mm -hmm. Gretchen Whitmer of Michigan. And, uh, and to assassinate her as well. Yes, if you've been following the developments in that case, um, what the feds are currently alleging is that 
the plot didn't end uh, with the idea of kidnapping Whitmer, but rather uh, it was a more elaborate plot with the, with the goal of kidnapping uh, and then executing on live television uh, as many government officials as they could. So, you know, yes, it's a very dark and apocalyptic tendency um, and one that's gained power and is gaining further traction uh, amid sort of a collapse of electoral hopes uh, from the far right as a result of the 2020 election. We'll get to the uh, the elections in a little while as well, but uh, I just want to follow the, the process here. Is it easy for anyone to access the white supremacist websites and chat rooms? Um, is there a list? Isn't Hasn't a list been made available by uh, something called Unicorn Riot? So um, Unicorn Riot is a wonderful independent journalistic website. Um, and some of what they've done, uh, you know, one of the most valuable services they've provided to the public and to researchers and journalists is that they've obtained leaked chat logs of several different uh, militant far-right extremist tendencies, including most recently um, the leaked uh, chat logs of the private chat for uh, a, a nationwide militia group called the Oath Keepers. Um, I wouldn't say it's necessarily incredibly easy for kind of your average bear to just know where to look, but knowing where to look is sort of half the battle. And um, when I started out the process of, you know, researching culture warlords, it was an interesting uh, time in the white supremacist sphere. Um, there had been several high-profile bannings in 2019 of white nationalist figures um, from mainstream social media like Twitter and Facebook, although they're still rife with extremists. Um, and so a lot of the most militant uh, dialogue moved to an encrypted app called Telegram, mm -hmm. um, which uh, it's an encrypted chat app, but it allows you to have these sort of public-facing channels um, and then also private chat rooms as well. And so... How would um, I get onto Telegram? Well, you just download it. <laughs> um, oh. But, you know, suddenly I was seeing in 2019 this, this sort of mass migration to Telegram. So on these extremist spaces, these neo-Nazi news sites and uh, forums like 8chan uh, and 4chan, they were sort of telling users, okay, you know, we're going to move off <clears throat> Discord, which is a different platform designed for gamers initially, um, and which had been the subject of a lot of these these leaks that Unicorn Riot uh, published, um, and and we're moving on to Telegram, and so that became the center of gravity for a lot of white supremacist ideologues in 2019 and 2020. And so I joined between like 90 and 100 of these wow. chat rooms, um, some lurking, some participating as little as I could, just to sort of stay in. Um, and I started just looking at what they were saying and what their goals were, um, with the goal of kind of providing my audience, uh, in, in culture warlords with, uh, as much clarity as, as I could about what their purpose was, the tenor of their dialogue, who the people speaking were. Now I've heard of another new, uh, uh, site called Parlor, 
which is kind of like the Twitter of, of these people. Uh, again, I, I could just I could just get right on to it. Uh, along with some of the other things, you discovered a website called White Date Debt Not Debt. Yeah, I'm sorry, White Date.net, a whites only dating site for racists looking for love. And this came as a surprise, an extremist YouTube channel run by a 14 year old girl that has over 800,000 followers. Yeah, I mean, I think that 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 duality sort of neatly sums up where we are as far as, you know, the dissemination of white supremacist propaganda and radicalization on the Internet. Some of it is through perfectly mainstream platforms like YouTube um, that lead people down a rabbit hole of radicalization. And then there's also a suite of services for people who are already radicalized, like WhiteDate.net, which is explicitly marketed. I mean, I found WhiteDate.net through um, a blog post on a racist publishing house's website where the founder specifically talked about the the need for a eugenics-esque breeding program where we thought about breeding humans like we do about breeding animals. Um, and, and thus, you know, she had created this, this site for whites to find their beautiful, genetically, uh, shining white partner. And so I decided to look through that website, which was conspicuously devoid of women. Um, they, they had had a serious problem attracting women to the platform. And so I, I decided to pose as a woman and find out, you know, in the interest of understanding how white supremacy and misogyny interact and kind of dance with one another, um, what these white supremacists would say when confronted with the Aryan ideal they sought. You're listening to Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM. My guest is Talia Lavin who's written a book called Culture Warlords, My Journey into the Dark Web of White Supremacy, published by Hachette. So you uh, created this, uh, this a woman named Ashlyn, a, a, a slender, petite, gun-owning blonde who'd grown up on a white nationalist compound in Iowa who was looking for suitors. Uh, and she went to whitedate.net. Um, did, did you have to provide photos? I did, and I um, I used um, I sort of scraped the social media of a total innocent um, who was not living in the United States, um, but I did for her security um, make sure that the photos weren't traceable. You you couldn't um, you know find them in a reverse image search or anything like that, um, you know, so that she wasn't findable, um, and. Yeah, I mean, (laughs) looking like I do, kind of, um, uh, let's say, let's just say brunette, portly, uh, with a rather large nose and and not embodying the the Aryan archetype um, so heavily advertised by the website, I did find myself having to provide other photos. Um, So you you were a rarity, a, a woman on that site. Uh, what kind of response did you get, and uh, where did where were the, the the respondents from? So, what was interesting was there was just a massive geographical uh, spread. You know, you had people from 
California and New York, um, from Scandinavia, from, you know, really all over the world um, who were on this website, active, looking for love. Um, and as to the types of responses, I mean, it was, it was sort of like um, a junky digital era Hannah Arendt study in the finality of evil. I mean, it was like people telling me, you know, about how much they hated black people and Jews, and then also describing, you know, their dinners every night or their gym routines, what they like to do. And so eventually I had them write uh, love letters to their ideal white wife and send them to me via a dummy email address. And you and quote some of them in the book. <laughs> They're kind of pathetic. Well, I describe them as a, uh, a car crash between Nicholas Sparks and Mein Kampf, where the, the racism is sort of couched in this very theatrical, romantic with a capital R prose. Um, there's really this inflated sense of self-importance, uh, a notion that, you know, they're, they're here to save the white race through breeding. Um, and like, we shall raise our wolf pack together. I can't wait to embrace you in a wheat field under the moon kind of thing. But it's like the, the, you know, the racism and the perceived romanticism of the project are inextricable. And to me, that was enlightening. You've described yourself as agoraphobic. Were you worried that doing this might cause you to have panic attacks? Well, of course it did. But, you know, everything causes me to have panic attacks. So uh, I didn't see that as a reason not to uh, explore America's most bilious racist movements. And you, uh, uh, okay, go ahead, finish. Oh, no, just that, um, you know, I, I think my well-established life of neurosis um, prepared me to face some genuine fear in this process. But of course, you were not being anything like yourself. Uh, and uh, you also became male. You pretended to be Tommy O'Hara, an incel, which stands for an involuntary celibate. Uh, do they have to be virgins? Um, you know, <laughs> there, there's, there's a lot of terminology involved, like any sort of in-group jargon is a bonding mechanism. So you know, in, or, in order to be a true cell, a true involuntary celibate, you have to be a virgin. Oh. But, um, you know, there are there are people who, you know, may have gotten laid once, but but generally uh, still hew to this this community based on viciously misogynist grievance. Well, how um, does it they tie in with white supremacy? Are all the incels white supremacists? So they're not. Um, and the reason why I chose, uh, they're not even all white. I mean, I, the, I, the message board that I infiltrated, you have to, ha you had to have sort of a very elaborate backstory about how you're an incel and why you hate women. And, um, in order to get into the private chat rooms of that, that main message board, um, so the reason why I chose to talk about incels at length in the book is because uh, one of the theses is that misogyny, uh, radicalized misogyny, uh, is inextricable from, from white supremacy. And so what was interesting to me uh, about the incel community, first of all, they, you know, portray themselves as sort of just these 
these sad men who can't get laid. Um, and of course that's, you know, that's something that a lot of us could empathize with. I mean, many of us have had struggles in the romantic arena, myself certainly among them. Um, and you, more, you say that he, he said that one of the reasons is he had cystic acne and weak wrists. Well, I was really studying what they say about themselves and trying to reproduce it as faithfully as possible. Um, but yeah, I mean, initially you want to sort of empathize with them. And then the more you look into the movement, you realize, oh no, this is about drumming up woman hate. I mean, this really has nothing to do with sex. They, they fantasize about having government mandated girlfriends and, and, and just killing women and punishing them in every way possible so that it's not about sex except as a proxy for power and for hatred. So did um, anybody was, respond to Tommy? Yeah, I mean, Tommy. Some women were willing to put him out of his misery? Oh, uh, well, I, you know, I wasn't trying to harass women in, in my uh, in my guise. Um, but again, it's not about putting out of misery. Uh, it, you know, they're, they set out to inflict misery, the incel community. And then so, you know, uh, on this message board, there was an internal poll of kind of, are you white or not? And it was about a 60-40 split where 40% of users were not white. And yet white supremacists were actively recruiting on the board. Um, and white supremacist rhetoric was absolutely ubiquitous. Um, you know, everywhere there were, there were tons of attacks on and harassment of interracial couples. Um, and this racial hierarchy uh, built in to um, this incel community where white men were sort of universally viewed as privileged and, and, and most attractive. And so, uh, it was interesting to me that the the incel community, despite putatively not being about uh, white supremacy or even all white, uh, reproduced this racial hierarchy and that because they were organized around radicalized misogyny, um, they they became a fertile recruiting ground for the white power movement. Um, and it sort of fed into a, an overall thesis that <clears throat> misogyny is both a gateway hatred and a kind of crucial underpinning of the white power. And you see that in another one of the characters you created on a Verherrschaft division, an American and European chat room that's hoping for a race war. You were a young woman, uh, you called yourself the Aryan queen, interested in saving the white race through violence. Uh, and, uh, didn't some of the neo-Nazis wonder what raping her would be like? Uh, no. <laughs> oh, uh, did I get that wrong? I'm sorry. No, that's fine. It's a, it's a book full of its own special uh, cavalcade of horrors, which is what looking very deeply into this movement is like. Um, the person they were wondering about raping was me, uh, Talia Levin. That oh. was me uh, eavesdropping on um, a particularly violent neo-Nazi chat uh, only to find that um, I was a topic of discussion, whether I was too ugly to rape, and um, the ultimate kind of, they ultimately settled on uh, raping me with a shotgun. 
Um, the Aryan Queen character um, that infiltrated the Warhershaft division, um, that was, again, you know, the term I think uh, some people use is honeypot. Um, it's this idea of creating sort of a sexually compelling character to get people to talk to you. Um, and in this case, the person I talked to for about five months was a Ukrainian neo-Nazi extremist um, who ran a channel called Brenton Tarrant's Lads, Brenton Tarrant being the Christchurch mosque shooter who killed 53 Muslims. So this is a channel devoted to hero worship of this murderer. Um, it was a Ukrainian-language channel. I speak, uh, I speak some Ukrainian, so I was able to grasp immediately just how vicious this channel was. And they had also, the person that wound up falling into my honeypot trap turned out to be uh, the man who'd arranged for the, the manifesto of the Christchurch mosque shooter to be uh, translated into Russian and Ukrainian and disseminated illegally across Russia and Ukraine and put into the hands of militant neo-Nazi groups in those countries. And so uh, I wound up talking to him for about five months, convincing him uh, that this was his ideal bride um, uh, to the point where he started declaring his love uh, and then exposing him uh, and his real identity. He begged, uh, pleaded, and pretended to be his own mother online after I revealed that I was uh, an anti-fascist who had uh, simply been, um, you know, getting pictures of his face and his license plate and getting as much information out of him as I could over the span of five months. So that was an anti-fascist catfishing excursion for culture warlords. We won't talk about the uh, the warehouse worker in Morgantown, West Virginia, and some of the others, but I wanted to get to uh, things that you did as yourself. You attended a conference for alt-right YouTubers in Philadelphia, and what happened there? Yeah, that was sort of a fascinating... Um, yeah, no, I, I didn't purely kind of lurk online. I did also go places and do things as myself, Talia Levin. Uh, in a more traditional way. And um, the reason I kind of started doing all this gonzo um, stuff under different names was because um, given I had a sort of notoriety in, in the far-right community, um, given that I was a Jewish woman, it was very hard for me to get in the front door and speak to spokespeople and, you know, simply attend white nationalist events uh, as other reporters who don't have those uh, identity liabilities uh, have been able to do. Um, it's very hard as a Jew, um, that, you know, who isn't shy about being a Jew to, to get into this world through the front door. Um, and so, but I did attend this conference for all of the YouTubers. It helped that they, they had built it. It was called the Minds IRL conference. They had sort of built it as like, oh, we're not, you know, even though, a vast majority of the speakers were alt or far right. Um, they kind of said, oh, we're really tolerant ones, you know, we're here to foster discussion. And so they allowed me to get a press pass for the event. And I wound up spending most of my time, you know, in the interest of, as for the rest of the book, talking to the rank and file, just interviewing conference attendees at the Sugar House Casino in Philadelphia. 
Um, and talking to them about what had drawn them there, why they were such big fans of, you know, these far-right YouTubers. Um, and I wound up sort of getting chased out of the casino by, in, in kind of slow-mo by a group of people who um, had figured out who I was and really didn't want me there. Well, it could get pretty crazy sounding. You were rejected from joining a white supremacist pagan ritual in the Albany area by the elders of a weightlifting pagan cult called Operation Werewolf. Wow. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, there, there, Hard to there, imagine. Are, a lot of, there are a lot of uh, white supremacist groups that use um, pagan or heathen symbology, particularly the Norse pantheon with the idea that they're um, kind of hewing to an indigenous white European religion. Of course, that's anachronistic um, and doesn't really fit the, uh, like, you know, the, the Norse pantheon was worshipped before whiteness was a salient racial category. So it, it's very uh, historically inaccurate. But it's part of this idea of myth-making, this idea that, you know, the white race is something thousands of years old and worth filling your blood to defend. So um, Operation Werewolf is kind of a, a feeder uh, cult into a, a much smaller and more radical cult called the Wolves of Vinland. Um, it's based out of a compound called Ulfheim in Virginia, um, and it's been associated with the arson of several black churches. Um, they're, you know, basically they... Um, position themselves as this uber macho, um, you know, Viking biker gang that does things like slaughter sheep in the woods for the glory of Odin. Um, and so I, I did try to join um, very politely uh, and, uh, you know, was later told I was rejected after the elders had uh, made a determination that I couldn't join. Of course, after the book was published, I uh, um, I sort of found the guy I'd been talking to um, about coming to this this ritual outside of Albany, um, saying, "Well, you know, she should have known from the start we would never let Jews uh, into our ceremony." <laughs> well, uh, I have again, to go to a break in a moment, but uh, but I, I'd imagine. Uh, it was a psychologically taxing experience. You listen to a white nationalist freestyle rap diss battle. I would think that they would be opposed to rap. Uh, you saw photos of trans Jewish and black children posted by neo-Nazis who talked about killing them. Uh, this is a kind of a frightening world. And, we, and, and after the break, we'll get into some more of the frightening aspects of it. Okay? Yeah. You're listening to Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. Before we get back to my conversation with Talia Lavin, I'd like to ask you to take a moment to support the programming that we bring you on Leonard Lopate at Large here on WBAI by calling 516-620-3602 
or by going online to give to WBAI.org right now. Consider becoming a sustaining member of the station, what we call a BAI buddy, because it's a great way to support the station without having to lay out a lot of money at any one time. And we have a special offer for anyone who becomes a BAI buddy in the name of Leonard Lopate at large during today's show. If you call 516-620-3602 or go to give to wbai.org right now we would be happy to send you a copy of culture warlords my journey into the dark web of white supremacy by my guest talia lavin as our way of saying thanks again all you need to do is call 516-620-3602 or visit give to wbai.org and sign up to become a bai buddy at the tax deductible monthly amount of, of $10, $15, $20, whatever you're comfortable with to be taken out of your credit card, your debit card, whatever is easiest for you. And that's it. We will take care of the rest. BAI buddies are a great way to contribute because they offer BAI a steady source of support so we can plan for the future. <laughs> but however you choose to donate, the important thing is that you do your part to keep this show and this legendary radio station alive. The only station on the New York radio dial that's completely listener sponsored. We don't take corporate underwriting, funding grants of any kind. We don't run ads. So if you agree with us that independent media matters, we need your help to keep it going. One last time, the number to call is 516-620-3602 or go to give to wbai.org online. And please be sure to make that contribution in the name of Leonard Lopate at Large. And a big thanks to all of you. Uh, back with my guest, Talia Lavin, freelance writer with nearly 114,000 Twitter followers. She's had bylines in The New Yorker, The New Republic, The New York Times, The Washington Post, Village Voice, Huffington Post, and other places. And we're talking about her new book called Culture Warlords, My Journey into the Dark Web of White Supremacy, published by Hachette Books. You mentioned uh, Donald Trump because uh, it's hard not to think about Donald Trump. How much do you think that the 2016 election of Donald Trump and the recent election and its aftermath have done for white supremacy? Has it been more out in the open over the past four years? Yeah, I mean, I think that's, that's hard to argue against. Um, so it's interesting because the 2016 and 2020 elections unfolded against very different backdrops. Um, 2016 election, um, the 2015 campaign uh, was a huge shot in the arm to white nationalists and white supremacists and the white power movement at large. What you had in Donald Trump was a campaign, um, you know, and a, and a, and a candidate that unabashedly um, really embraced uh, the most sort of radical tenets of the white power movement, who was very explicitly um, running on a, a, a campaign of white nationalism. Um, and, you know, from the very first, you know, I think there's been this tone of perennial surprise as, as Trump has sort of embraced various incidents of white nationalist violence while in office. Um, and telling the Proud Boys to stand by during the debate. Yes. Um, but, you know, five years before that, in 2015, during his candidacy, when two Trump supporters um, beat and uh, urinated on a Latino homeless man 
um, and Trump was asked to comment on it, he called them passionate about their country and refused to offer any condemnation at all. So, you know, the white power movement absolutely noticed, and um, they were fully in Trump's corner. A lot of the sort of young um, white nationalist friendly, uh, you know, at this point, at that point, teenagers online, you know, were very pro-Trump, were creating memes that were used by his campaign. Um, there was absolutely a, a feedback loop between the white power movement and the Trump campaign at the time. And so um, when, when he won, it was this moment of massive adrenaline, you know, right into the arm, the, the veins of the movement. It was the sense of we've won. We have our God emperor, as, you know, one neo-Nazi website put it. Um, so but on the other hand, hasn't, haven't the neo-Nazis called Trump a puppet of Israel and, and too cozy with Jewish supporters like Sheldon Adelson? Yes. So there's a mixed message here, isn't there? Well, I would say that, um, you know, the sort of insurgent campaign, this idea of the outsider winning on his message of white nationalism provided this surge of adrenaline and served as a direct impetus for the creation of, you know, of new neo-Nazi groups like Patriot Front, like the Adam Buffett Division. Um, but since then, I mean, as Trump has been in power, um, there's been a complica complicating of the relationship among certain elements of the white supremacist movement. Um, you know, some groups like the militias um, have embraced Trump and, and, and stayed cozy and tight in that embrace throughout and including now um, after the 2020 election. Um, other groups who um, put anti-Semitism more at the fore um, have been soured on Trump um, in no small part because he has had Jews in his administration. He's cozied up to far-right, you know, Jews like Sheldon Adelson, and uh, largely in order to appease uh, and you know, generate support from his Christian Zionist, uh, Christian evangelical followers, has made these sort of theatrical gestures like moving the Israeli embassy to Jerusalem. Um, so, but there is a sense that, you know, it's, it's funny. It's like every, uh, it is sort of a mirror image of um, the way every uh, pure ideologue can get frustrated by real politics. So just as Trump has kind of dramatically refashioned the GOP in his own image, there has been some uh, co-optation of Trump uh, for traditional uh, GOP desires, like tax cuts, like uh, deregulation, that white supremacists really don't care about. And so they feel injured by their, their would-be figurehead. Um, and so there's been somewhat of a souring on Trump and a souring on electoral politics in general. Uh, from sort of the most hardcore neo-Nazi uh, bastions of the movement over the last uh, number of years. And I explore that dynamic in Culture Warlord. On the other hand, there has been a lot of talk about a civil war if Trump is forced to concede. And weren't you expecting QAnon and right-wing militias to make this a bloody month following the election? Um, you know, I was, and I'm always happy when my worst predictions are proven wrong. It still can happen. 
Yeah, exactly. This is, you know, what I was going to say is that even if November thus far has not seen too many murders in the streets, we're at a very precarious moment uh, in, in America right now. You know, we're at a moment where the top line from the GOP, I mean, from like the RNC's Twitter account, is that the election was illegitimate. Um, we're seeing complete silence on that from most uh, Republican elected officials, if not outright embrace of the idea that American elections are fraudulent. And what I'm seeing, you know, the, currently I'm working on infiltrations of the militia movement, um, is really this idea of it's time for the people to stand up, uh, you know, to take our power back. We're seeing these big far-right gatherings at state capitals and uh, recently in D.C., um, a Stop the Steal march that culminated in stabbings after dark with the Proud Boys taking over the streets in broad daylight. So I don't think we're at a moment where the danger has passed. I think we're at a moment where um, the, idea, the very idea of democracy has been very powerfully uh, undermined and where there are an awful lot of armed people who are imbibing an awful lot of uh, conspiracies of every kind, including conspiracies about coronavirus, conspiracies about a vaccine, um, you know, I think that this is a febrile moment and one ripe with potential for violence, both from those who are accelerationists and long for collapse uh, of the polity, uh, you know, who long to usher in the, the boogaloo, the race war, um, and among those who consider themselves the ultimate patriots. Uh, in the militia movement. So I now, where, that, we're the, that whole Boogaloo thing, where did they come up with that name and why do they wear Hawaiian shirts? Yeah, so it's, um, it's interesting. And to me, it illustrates a, a point I make in, in, in Culture Warlords a few times, which is how um, these groups use humor to their advantage. So um, the, the Boogaloo gets its name from uh, a 1984 breakdance movie called Break in Two Electric Boogaloo. Um, and the, the word, boog like the, the sort of electric boogaloo became um, a meme, uh, like a synonym for any like crappy sequel, right? Um, and so the sequel here that we're talking about uh, is to the Civil War. It's Civil War II, Electric Boogaloo. Um, so that's where the name the Boogaloo comes from, why they call themselves the Boogaloo Boys. And the Hawaiian shirts are a pun. Um, once the term Boogaloo got, you know, discussed, um, you know, over the summer during uh, the George Floyd protest, Boogaloo Boys started showing up in public a lot more. The term started getting mainstream press coverage and, um social media companies who always rely on the press to do the work they should be doing um, belatedly started banning some of the biggest groups um, that had the term boogaloo in them. Um, <clears throat> white supremacists started looking at basically puns. So the Hawaiian shirts are because big luau sounds like boogaloo. Hmm. They also use um, like uh, an igloo, uh, on, on some of their patches because Big Igloo also sounds like Boogaloo. Um, you know, you start sounding crazy when you talk about the terminology, but it's 
It's all, it's code, it's winks. It's how they recognize each other. And, well, the, um, image, the image I get of white supremacists on TV and the counter demonstrations to, to uh, protests and Black Lives Matter is of mostly overweight rural men in overalls. But you point out that they're doing podcasts, making audiobooks and videos, they're trading tactics and software programming, the military, and, and uh, also uh, office middle managers. Uh, so uh, this can get rather sophisticated. But my, my question uh, is, why do women become part of this largely patriarchal, largely misogynistic white supremacist movement? Um, well, just to address your, your earlier point, yes, it, it does get more sophisticated than that. I think it's important, you know, for listeners of your show uh, and for everyone who, who might consider themselves to be sophisticated and thoughtful, um, you know, not to fall into this trap of thinking that every white power guy is sort of a toothless cletus masturbating in his mother's basement. I think that's largely a myth that enables a lot of self-absolution. It couldn't be anyone in my town. It couldn't be anyone in my school. It couldn't be anyone in my homeowners association, when in fact it could be. There's no single demographic uh, or level of educational attainment that, uh, you know, renders people immune from uh, the seductions of the white power movement. Um, and that includes women. Um, most, I mean, a lot of the groups that I infiltrated were very heavily male, but certainly if you look at the... Uh, in some cases, that, exclusively male. Uh, the Proud Boys are exclusively male. Uh, a lot of these groups are heavily misogynistic and predicated on misogyny. But um, if you especially look at the street protests, if you look at the militias, um, there is a very large female presence on the far right. Um, and of course, you know, uh, plurality of white women voted for Trump in 2016, and it's looking like that number may have increased in 2020. Um, you know, I think there are there are a lot of reasons why women are attracted to these movements. Um, and first of all, I would say women aren't immune to the social forces that draw people to these movements. Um, the sense of loneliness, of displacement, of wanting a greater purpose in the world, um, this sense of, you know, wanting to save the white race or wanting to be the ultimate American patriot. Um, you know, these are things that appeal to women as well as men. Um, and women are certainly not, you know, immune to feelings of loneliness or desire for purpose. Tanya Lavin is my guest today on Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM uh, and streaming live at WBAI.org. Uh, we're talking about her book, Culture Warlords, My Journey into the Dark Web of White Supremacy, which is published by Hachette. I'm sorry I interrupted you. I had to do a station break. Oh, no, I have no problem at all. Um, now, I, I want to get to a whole other matter, and we don't have a heck of a lot of time. Um, don't they say that uh, Jewish uh, that Jewish assimilation into whiteness is a plot? Uh, they, they don't classify Jews. They, do they classify Jews as non-white? Yeah. So I go into a, a lot of the, the sort of history of anti-Semitism. Yeah. Uh, Henry in, Ford, among other things. Yes, in 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 culture warlords, and so 
if you're interested in, in looking into that phenomenon, I do suggest picking up the book. Um, but basically the argument I make, and I think it's fairly well borne out by, by evidence, you know, um, is that uh, anti-Semitism be- becomes sort of the intellectual linchpin of the white power movement. Um, it's a means of kind of conjuring up an enemy that's more powerful than you, more organized than you, and more and sort of bent on the destruction of the white race. Um, and so, it, calling it, you for know, it turns, calling for assimilation, calling for some kind of a uh, a mixed race is is that what they're suggesting Jews want to do? Yes, it's a conspiracy theory called white genocide, and it's Dilute, diluting uh, the white race with the ultimate goal of creating mixed race super citizens. I haven't uh, seen very much more, of that in the Jewish press. Uh, no, who who will be more malleable to Jewish control? Because again, this is a very racist movement as well, and so they believe that people of color are inherently more stupid, more malleable, right? Mm-hmm. So it's it's both racist and anti-Semitic. So welcome to uh, welcome to the phenomenon that I've been studying. Um, and, yeah, and, and George Soros uh, has become a symbol of that, hasn't he? Yes, and you see that sort of bleed over in the way that um, mainstream Republicans obsess over George Soros as well, um, in kind of their thinly veiled uh, jabs at anti-Semitism. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think that um, it's very hard from kind of a bare intellectual standpoint to argue that white men are the most oppressed demographic in the United States. And that's why there's this intellectual need for the Jew um, to be conjured up as this ultimate enemy, someone who's sneakily assimilated into whiteness with the goal of subverting it from within. Um, and Jews and, are not white. No, not do, What, not what do they think Paul Newman is? Uh, <laughs> uh, you know, he's a, what they call me, for example, is a shapeshifter, right? Uh, someone who, or, or a crypto, someone who is trying to pass as white despite my Jewishness. So, and, and the, the shape-shifting um, can go even further. We don't have much time, but uh, they uh, say Jews are Marxists and capitalists at the same time, which seems to me to be rather contradictory. On the other hand, another contradiction is that Henry Ford, as you point out in your book, published a set of pamphlets under the title The International Jew in the 1920s, in which it was claimed that even the best, smartest white man could never make as much uh, money as the Jew because the Jew had this inherent racial cunning and solidarity with other Jews. So Jews are just as uh, have an inherent advantage over the Gentile when it comes to making money. That by Henry Ford, one of the wealthiest men in the world at the time. Right. And it was certainly handy for him to be able to uh, fob off the, the horrors of capitalism on, on, on Jews, wasn't it? No, I mean, so I think that, uh, I think that Again, this is part of the part of the rhetorical utility of the Jew is that is is uh, is the na- is the protean nature of it. So the Jew can be the Judeo Bolshevik, sowing cultural Marxism all around you, and you'll notice the ubiquity of the term cultural Marxism in uh, Republican dialogue today. Um, the Jew is also the or capitalist who's keeping you oppressed and making your wages lower than they should be. The Jew can be everything you hate, and that's. Uh, that's the utility of the Jew in the white power uh, intellectual structure. So that so that they blame everything from feminism to trans rights to 
uh, pushes for civil rights on Jews. And um, that's been an enduring narrative since during the civil rights movement, synagogues were firebombed under the imprimatur that uh, civil rights was a plot by Jewish communists. It's an old tactic and a durable one um, because anti-Semitism is all about the ability to conjure up an all-powerful scapegoat. Talia, I'm sorry, but we've run out of time. <clears throat> but I thank you so much for a fascinating show. Talia Lavin's book is called Culture Warlords, My Journey into the Dark Web of White Supremacy. It's published by Hachette Books. It's been a pleasure having you. Um, yeah, and I did particularly encourage everyone in this holiday season to pick up the book from an mm -hmm. indie bookstore. Um, McNally Jackson in New York is my favorite, but... Um, Please support your local indie bookstore. They're really struggling. And uh, pick up a copy, uh, if you can, not from Amazon, but from your local indie. Or as I mentioned earlier, if uh, people become BAI buddies, we'd be delighted to send them a copy of your book. Thank you again. Take care. Thank you. And that brings us to the end of today's show. If you're new to our program and like what you've been hearing, you can access past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. We are also available as an iTunes podcast. And don't forget to check out Leonard Lopate at Large on Facebook and Twitter and our website, LeonardLopateAtLarge.com, where you'll find links to all of our past shows. And if you'd like to uh, write a comment or just want to say hello, my email address is LeonardLopate at WBAI.org. Before I sign off today, I want to take just one last minute to ask you for to support this station. If you care about Leonard Lopate at Large and all of the great programs on WBAI, we need your help to keep this 100% listener-sponsored radio station alive on the New York City dial. So I hope that you will step up right now and make a contribution at whatever level you're comfortable by calling 516-620-3602 or by going online to give to WBAI.org. And as I've been mentioning to just did recently, uh, if you become a BAI buddy during today's show by making a monthly contribution of $10 or more in the name of, of Leonard Lopate at large, we would be delighted to send you a copy of Culture Warlords, My Journey into the Dark Web of White Supremacy by my guest, Talia Lavin. But please be sure to make that contribution in the name of Leonard Lopate at large. And from all of us here at the station and from our show, thanks. We hope that you'll join us again tomorrow when the Arthur M. Schlesinger Jr. Professor of History at the CUNY Graduate Center, David Lassau, will discuss his new book, called The Last Million, Europe's Displaced Persons from World War to Cold War. And we'll see you then. <laughs>